And uh, yeah, our news is that I will be uh, moving within the month to take on the role of lead pastor at a church called Faithway Baptist Church in the town of Woodstock, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes to the west of uh, Hamilton. So it is good to be here this morning, and I have, I've just been so blessed and encouraged with all the time that I have got to spend with your pastor and getting to know the, some of the other brothers at your church. It really is a blessing to me, and that really does make it in some ways sad to go. It is always hard to start good friendships and then to leave, but we're pretty thankful that the friendships we make here are all of them just a deposit, aren't they? In Christ, we will be brothers and sisters forever. And we get to look forward to the relationship we're going to have with every single brother and sister in Christ, which is going to go on and on. It is good to be here with you again. It is good to open God's word with you. And this morning, uh, we're going to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. Let me pray, and then we'll open that up together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for... uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church, and we thank you for uh, brothers who are faithful to preach it. Uh, Much like Pastor Blake here, we pray that uh, his time away would be encouraging and refreshing for him and his family, and we thank you that that is a wonderful opportunity for fellowship. It is good to have church families, and it is good to visit other families and to delight in the work that the Lord is doing in this province as he is doing it all around the world. So I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would work powerfully in the preaching of your word, that this would be your truth for your people to uh, awaken dead hearts to life and to uh, hold and keep us until we see the face of Jesus in glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18, I want to spend the morning uh, in, in this passage. It's a passage which the Lord at one point just used so powerfully and personally in my life and really continues to use in my life as a preacher of the gospel. It stays with me because this passage essentially asks us the question, what ought the preachers of God's word preach? The answer to that question might seem obvious. I hope it seems obvious. But we know that around the world there is an increasing variety of messages being preached by those who say that they are the preachers of God's church. So it is good for us to go to God's word itself and ask, what is the mandate that God himself gives to preachers in his church? Now, Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians by diving right in to an issue that is plaguing that church, and that is division. Church members were picking their favorite leaders and forming camps around them. Some followed the preacher of Paulus, some followed the apostle Peter, some followed Paul. Some of them pitted Jesus against all these men and said, no, I follow Christ only. Now, these men were all preachers of the same message. This was not a case of defending truth from error or even debating or arguing about what God's word said. What the Corinthians wanted to do was identify themselves with whatever leader they preferred based on the qualities of those men that the world around them celebrated. Intelligence, charisma, Ability, 
style. Underneath this division was a desire to appeal to the wisdom and the thinking of the world around them. This is, of course, a danger the church is going to face in every culture, in every age. The prevailing wisdom of the world around us might change. Many of us in our own lives can account for how quickly the wisdom in the world around us can change, but the pressure doesn't change. Whatever the wisdom is in the world around us will always be felt by God's church. This pressure to appeal to popular desires, to preferences in our times. We are pulled to use the wisdom of the non-believing world around us to evaluate our leaders, to shape our churches, to affect our preaching, direct our preaching. That is what Paul addresses in the passage that we'll read this morning. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's word. The first thing I would like to draw your attention to from this passage is that God and humans have different ideas about what the church should preach. That might seem clear, but that is Paul's point here. God and humans have different ideas of what the church should preach. Paul references two cultures which surround the Corinthian church, and they each have their own idea about what the church should be teaching. First, you have Jewish culture, and Jewish culture wanted signs. You might remember those Pharisees who came to Jesus late in his ministry, after he had done so many miraculous works, after he'd clearly proven who he was, and they said, show us a sign. That's what we need from you. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, these Jews are apparently still coming to the churches saying, show us a sign. Show us something miraculous to prove that your message is true. Now, on the other hand, pressure is coming from Greek culture. Remember in Acts, Paul goes to Athens, and Luke tells us that the favorite pastime of those Athenians is just to share and listen to new ideas. They loved big ideas with clever arguments. Whatever idea made the person sharing it sound really smart was good for the Greeks. Acts 18 tells us when Paul went to Corinth, he encountered both of these cultures. The Corinthian church would have been made up of people saved out of both of these cultures. They would have had family members remaining in these cultures, friends in these cultures, so they would have continued to feel pressure coming from both of these directions regarding what they should preach. On the surface, Greek culture and Jewish culture don't look like they have a lot in common, do they? 
One wants supernatural miracles. The other wants rational arguments. If there were two churches in Corinth, and one of them had tried to appeal to Jewish culture, and one of them had tried to appeal to Greek culture, what do you think those two churches would have thought of each other? They probably would have hated each other. They would have said, that church over there is everything wrong with the church today. And yet... Paul says if the Corinthians go in one direction or the other, they have fallen into the same trap. They have let society outside the church tell the church what it ought to preach. Nowadays, we have so many different worldviews, so many different cultures, pulling the church in so many different directions. We certainly still have people demanding the church be all about miraculous signs, don't we? I'm not going to believe this message is true unless I am shown signs and miracles. We still have people wanting the church to be all about academic, intellectual thinking in our day. We want this to appeal to the smart people. We don't want them saying we're foolish. Now, we have churches that put in a great deal of effort to appeal to both of those cultures, don't we? But we also have churches trying to appeal to a culture of entertainment, to corporate culture, to self-help culture, to youth culture, on and on and on. As different as those cultures might seem to one another, again, to give in to any of them would be to give in to the same fundamental problem. The church is getting its mandate from men and not from God. Paul says, contrary to what Jews and Greeks want the church to do, he knows what the apostles must do. He knows what they are commanded to do. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach... Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The message of Jesus, of Paul, of Peter, of Apollos, all the apostles is Christ crucified. Now those two words are perhaps the most concise uh, statement of the gospel possible. Just two words. One tells us who Jesus was. The other tells us what Jesus did. So who was Jesus? Kids, I hope you could answer that. Who is Jesus? What does it mean that he was the Christ? It means that he was the king who came to save his people, doesn't it? It means that he is God and man. God himself took on humanity and was born of a woman. That's who Jesus is. And then, what did he do? He was crucified. After living a perfect, spotless life, he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. The perfect lamb in our place, bearing the full wrath of God for sinners. And that sacrifice was so perfect, so satisfying to God's justice, so powerful, that three days later, he rose from the dead. Because Christ was crucified, we can be delivered from God's punishment. We can be free from the command and the enslavement of sin. We can be born again and we can be promised a place and an eternal kingdom where Jesus reigns if our faith is in him. This is the message that Paul, the apostles, and thus the whole church must preach. Paul tells the Galatians, if he or even an angel from heaven were to preach any different gospel, they would be anathema. They would be accursed. 
This is the whole reason that the apostles were commissioned as apostles in the first place. So that eyewitnesses could go out and say, Jesus is the Christ and he has died for us and risen from the dead and we have witnessed it. Just after our passage in Corinthians, Paul goes so far as to say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's preaching was simple, that it was repetitive, that it was shallow. He goes on to tell the Corinthians that there is great, rich, deep spiritual wisdom he wants to impart to them. He tells the Ephesian elders he's come to preach the whole counsel of God. There is nothing in God's word that he would leave out. That idea isn't contradictory to preaching only Christ and him crucified because all of the richness of God's word grows out of the gospel. The gospel, that finished work of Christ, is the headline. It is the main point. It is the foundation which permeates all of Scripture. And all of the Scripture enriches and adorns that gospel message. With the gospel as our foundation, you can grow to the greatest wisdom and maturity and righteousness. But no matter how mature you become in the faith, we will never get past the gospel. We'll never ace our gospel class and move on to more difficult things. We never grow past needing the gospel. And so, we never stop preaching the gospel. So when Paul says he knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, what he means is that he rejected every other mandate regarding what he ought to preach. And he was warning the Corinthians, don't try and compromise between the mandate you have from God and the desires coming at you from the world around you. Because Paul says the message that the world desires and the message of the gospel are incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. That's our second point. Human wisdom and the gospel ultimately reject each other. Human wisdom and the gospel ultimately always reject each other. On the one hand, Paul says in verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He says the gospel message is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Jews thought that this notion of a Messiah suffering a death on a cross was absolutely disgusting. Crucifixion was death by hanging on a tree. And what did Moses say about anyone who hung from a tree? That he was accursed. A cursed Messiah was a stench to them. And it did not make it any sweeter for them to hear that it was their stench that he was bearing. That it was their curse that he went up on that tree for. That only enraged them all the more. This is the culture of the Pharisees. The pride of good works and law-keeping and human righteousness. And they are supposed to accept that their actions only deserved the wrath of God? Never. Even if they were told Jesus had come to take that wrath so they could be saved. No way. This message was still a stumbling stone to them. And it is still a stumbling stone to anyone who believes that the way to get to God is by being good enough. By doing the right things. By accomplishing all that is needed. That is the way to be saved. Now to the Greeks... 
The gospel sounded like foolishness. They loved human ability and intelligence and flourishing and achievement. But the apostles didn't come with some intellectual philosophy that would make you sound like a genius. They came with a report. They came with news. I need to tell you that a man has risen from the dead. And that man is offering salvation to us. This message wasn't very empowering. It didn't require very many big words to say. It didn't exalt human wisdom. In fact, it did the opposite. It gives all the glory to a man who saved a people who had nothing to offer in and of themselves. A man who came to rescue those who needed rescuing. The proud humanistic wisdom of our world, our culture, will still see this gospel as foolish. They will call us backwards and bigoted and behind the times. They say basing our lives on an ancient book is ridiculous. You don't sound very smart when you're teaching what God has said, they will say. So whether it's Jewish wisdom or Greek wisdom, whatever culture our hearts are currently being absorbed in, being pulled by, at rock bottom, all human wisdom will naturally reject the gospel. Why? Because at rock bottom, our proud hearts will always reject God. On the other side, As natural human wisdom calls the gospel folly, God exposes the true foolishness of the wisdom of the world. Verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And he goes on to say, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? The gospel takes in hand all of these different great ideas that we have come up with. All of our different cultures, our worldviews, our philosophies. And it exposes them all as failures. Thousands of years of human attempts to bring peace and happiness and flourishing. And how are we doing? Even by their own standard, these systems ultimately fail us. But that is just a hint of their true failure. None of them actually understands our real problem. That we are born children of wrath, enemies of our Creator, barred from the garden, from the presence of God, fallen in nature, dead in our sins. In fact, every new bright idea and worldview is just a renewed attempt to try and make this rebellion against God work to try and keep things chugging along while we reject our Creator and our Lord and the source of all wisdom and knowledge and truth. So none of these worldviews can offer us what we really need. If they don't know the problem, they cannot come up with the solution. We need peace with God. We need freedom from sin and the curse. We need reconciliation with our creator. So even as the wisdom of the world calls the gospel folly, the gospel exposes just the utter failure of the wisdom of the world. And the church must choose its message. Will we appeal to the world or will we preach the gospel of God? Which should we choose? Why should we hold on to the gospel even as they hate us for it? They slander us for it, maybe even persecute us for it. Why should we preach Christ crucified as they call on us again and again and again to change our message? 
Because the gospel is true? Yeah, because the gospel is true. It is the only truth. Because it is beautiful? Oh, yes, it is sweet. It is the best news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring such news as this. Because it is wise? Yes, we see that here. It is what is truly wise. It is the source of all truth. But the main reason Paul gives the Corinthians in this passage is that the gospel and the gospel alone is the power of God. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It's our third point. The gospel alone is the power of God. The wisdom of this world is ultimately, finally, powerless. It can impress us. It can entertain us. It might move us. It might give us a little bit of extra oomph for our week to keep us going. And it will leave us dead in our sins, under the wrath of God, bound for an eternity of punishment in hell and without a hope. But not the gospel. Because the gospel is not a rule to follow like Islam. It's not a philosophy like humanism or the laws of attraction. It's not a method like yoga. It is a real event. It is a powerful salvation that was actually accomplished entirely for you. This is the uniqueness of the gospel among the messages of the world. When they tell you, here is what you have to do, the gospel says, here is something that was actually done for you. He paid your debt. He took your shame. He bore your punishment. And he did so to offer you his righteousness, his honor, his record, so that without having to accomplish anything, without having anything to prove or anything to show Your salvation and place in his eternal kingdom is secure if you trust in him. And not only the events of the gospel are powerful, but God makes the preaching of this news itself powerful. The preaching of the gospel is how God takes out our dead hearts and puts in new hearts of flesh. It is the means by which the Holy Spirit mysteriously moves to make us born again. It is the only message by which God's enemies can repent, believe, and be children of God. And that message remains powerful in the life of those children of God because it sanctifies us. It equips us It builds us up to a maturity and a holiness that hold and keep us until we are brought safely home to Jesus. And you know what? The gospel is so powerful that it is even enough to save those people who hated it and saw it as foolishness. Paul says to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says, if the church gives in to the pressures of the people around it to preach any message other than the gospel, they have given up the very thing that has the power to save those people. If you let the, those who are outside of God's family tell us what to preach, They will always ask you for the very things that will leave them unsaved. They can only ask for things that have no power to save. 
No power to heal, no power to cleanse, no power to reconcile, no power to make any promises. But when we receive our mandate from God to preach His good news, we find His Spirit working powerfully to save even those people who are clamoring for anything other than this gospel. Those Greeks who wanted wisdom, those Jews who demanded signs. The worst skeptic can be made wise to the truth. The proudest heart can be humbled. The most hopeless, despairing heart can be given comfort and rest in Christ. The most individualistic person can embrace the family of God. There is no person outside of the reach of the power of the cross. Church, I'm sure that all of us have, at one time or another, felt the pull to compromise the gospel. Maybe we have a family member who is not a believer who might just be a little bit more open to our message if we smoothed over some of those hard edges that make them bristle. Maybe we know that we would fit in a little bit better at work if we just changed our answers a little bit when they asked us about our faith. We could feel like we belonged a little bit better with our neighbors, if we made the gospel just a little bit more appealing than Scripture does. Oh, dear brother and sister, when you are feeling that pressure upon your heart from the outside, when you're feeling that pressure come from your heart, remember the incredible power of the gospel. Remember its power in your own salvation. Don't forget that you were lost in the kingdom of darkness, and it took nothing less than this perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save you, and he paid that cost, and he paid it willingly for you. When the world calls our message folly, remember as Paul said, that's the folly that saved you. You are here now. Look at you. You are among the people of God. You were justified. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified, not because you were one of those people that was really easy to save. You are here because God offered such a great salvation. That's what got you here. It is, if that gospel was enough for you, it is enough for your wayward child, for your angry colleague, for your offended neighbor. If the church changes its message to anything else, we don't just lose Christ's power for the lost, but we lose his power in the church itself. History gives us uncountable examples of what happens when the church loses confidence in the gospel, when we start to rest on the wisdom of our own hearts, when we start to make our wisdom compatible with the wisdom of the world around us. One of the main dangers is what we see in Corinth, division. If the Corinthians decided to cater to the demands of the Jews, they would be choosing to exclude the Greeks. If they chose to appeal to the Greeks, they would be choosing to alienate the Jews. After years of infighting, you would almost definitely soon see a Greek church and a Jewish church. Think of how often the church has divided over matters of culture and taste and preference. We have churches for young folks and for old folks. We have business class churches and economy class churches. 
We have classical music churches and we've got rock and roll churches. And within these churches, everybody might feel really good and unified on a Sunday because we kicked out everybody that we didn't want here. We have willfully divided the body of Christ. In the gospel, not only can Jew and Greek both be saved, but they can be united within the body of Christ. The gospel's power to reconcile us to God is its power to reconcile us to one another. The gospel is God's power to unite you with someone who before you were saved, you would have thought you had nothing in common with, you didn't want anything to do with. Someone who is radically divided from you by culture, by taste, by generation. The gospel has the power to reconcile you with that brother and sister who you have offended, who has offended you. The gospel has the power to help us to repent, to forgive, to sanctify, not just as individuals, but then as a church, building us up into a unified maturity. And as that power works in the church, we become a display to the world that here is a miraculous power of God that none of their wisdom can touch. Now maybe, just maybe, You have not yet experienced the power of the gospel. You have heard it. You've thought about it. But you have not experienced its power. And then you look into your own heart. Your heart that is asking that if we can just give the world something else, something they would like better, and you realize that it's not your neighbor that you're concerned about. But it is your own heart that thinks that this gospel just doesn't cut it that it's foolish, it's even offensive. You yourself wish that we would just put this message away. Put something forward that's a little bit less odd, maybe a little bit less embarrassing to you. My friend, no matter how many times you've heard the gospel and ignored it, run from it, changed it in your heart to something which gives a little bit more glory to you, no matter how many times you have run from it, It is powerful enough to save you. You are not beyond the reach of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient for your salvation. God's Spirit is powerful enough to take your heart that is resisted, that is perhaps hidden secret sin that you are enslaved to, that takes hold of your embarrassment, your desire for something else, for something better, powerful enough to change you. Change that heart. So repent of holding on to your pride for so long, of holding out for so long, of clinging to other things for so long, and put your faith in Jesus, in only Jesus, and experience the power of the gospel. And then, brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you first believed last week, last year, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, let's never grow up past the gospel. Kids, teenagers, grown-ups, you need the gospel, and you need it every day. Not just on Sunday mornings. When Paul says we preach Christ crucified, he doesn't only mean in the gathering of the church. He is talking about every day and all of life. You should be able to watch the gospel flowering out in your life into the whole counsel of God, touching every aspect of wisdom and every part of who you are. 
The gospel is God's power for every ministry of this church. It is God's power for your marriage or for your struggles as you desire marriage. It is powerful enough for your parenting, for your war against indwelling sin, for your despair and depression, for your suffering. It is God's power against the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is God's power for your sanctification. God's power for your holiness. It is your anchor in trials and your comfort in storms. And it is your sure hope of perseverance. It is your promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't forget, when you are tempted to lose confidence in the power of the gospel, when the world calls the gospel foolish, ineffectual, outdated, when your own heart starts to think that the wisdom of this world, the things that it is offering you, might just be a little bit sweeter than what God has given us in Christ, this is still the power of God for His church. The power that we need. And finally, it is also what you need to require your preachers to preach. I don't think I say that against the will and desires of the preachers of this church. It is what we need our teachers to teach. It's what we need our leaders to make the foundation of their leadership. This is my concluding point. We must preach Christ crucified. Paul tells the Corinthians that if he or Apollos or Peter or any of the other preachers gives in to the pressure to preach according to worldly wisdom, they would be trying to build up God's house with straw when God has laid the foundation with gold. And one day, fire will come and burn up the straw of that ministry. If at any moment a preacher shifts his message off the gospel onto his own wisdom, his own method, his own power, he might get himself a very loyal fan base. He might get a lot of likes on social media. He might find himself on the New York Times bestseller list. But he will find that he is building his own little kingdom and that one day it is all going to go up in smoke. Every elder, every preacher is a servant. They are not masters of the church. God is the head of this household. Christ is the king of this kingdom. And all we can do if we are one day going to be found faithful by him when he comes is to serve him by serving you, his church, with what he has commanded we give you. And he will accept nothing else and nothing less than that we continue to build up the church with that same golden foundation that he has laid, the gospel, Christ, the cornerstone of this household. Why does he demand that of us? Why, as Ezekiel says, as Paul says, would our blood, your blood, be on our hands if we were to offer you anything else? You know why? Because he loves you so. Because you, church, are his sheep. And he is your shepherd. And the gospel is his rod and his staff that leads you to green pastures and beside still waters. God says that any church leader who tries to lure you with their own message is a thief and a robber, stealing the sheep out of God's fold. God does not want to see his sheep led astray by thieves and robbers. He wants you kept and held and guarded and cared for with the good news that he has given you.
with the salvation that he brought about for you. He has already given you Christ. He has given you his own son to bear your wrath so you could be his child. He has paid the greatest price to welcome you into his kingdom. He has given you his spirit as his helper. And in his word, the gospel, he has laid out the path to lead you through every trial and storm and bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is the essential good news, the wisdom of God for the church. For every single sheep, the weakest sheep here, the most fearful sheep, the least knowledgeable, this is God's wisdom for you. The love of God for you, his grace for you, his power, it is all here in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has come. We thank you that he was crucified for us. We thank you that he rose from the dead. And we thank you, Father, that this good news is one that you have sent out your messengers to preach all over the world to work powerfully to build your church. So, Father, I pray for the leaders of this church, for the sheep among this flock, that we would desire nothing more and nothing else than this good news and that in it we would find the power and the wisdom that you have for your church to build us up to maturity, to guard us in our perseverance and lead us safely into the arms of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.